welcome to episode 11 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your keen and quarantined host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. This episode actually will cover three first season episodes. Episode 19, Along Came Joey, and the two-parter, so episode 20 and 21, Once Upon a Time. I know, I know, it's been a series of ambitious episodes here at Bookum Dano, but don't worry, we'll get through this together. Apologies for the quality of some of the sound bites in this episode. I had some technical difficulties, but let's be real. My entire podcast is one big technical difficulty. Okay, enough of that. Let's go to Hawaii. What do we got, Dano? Heartbreaker. Two guys get out of a parked car, start clobbering Joey Kalama. No reason. Always a reason, Dano. How's Phil holding up? Pretty good for a guy who's just lost his only son. Episode 19, Along Came Joey. Air date February 12th, 1969. Directed by Richard Benedict. This is 5 of 11 for him. Story by Jerry Ludwig. This will be the first of 12 for him. And teleplay by Jerry Ludwig and Mel Goldberg. And this is the third of 12 for Mel. Joey Kalama wins his boxing match in front of a cheering crowd that includes Dano, Joey's dad, Maui Lieutenant Phil Kalama, and Joey's girl, Lois. The celebration will be a table for three since Danny has some work to do, but the joy is short-lived. As Phil goes to make the arrangements, Joey and Lois leave only to be attacked by two men in the glare of headlights. This, unfortunately, is one fight that Joey can't win. Steve arrives and talks to Joey's manager, Nat, who says that everyone loved Joey because he was a winner. When Steve asks him how much money was writing on tonight's fight, Nat makes a point of saying that he doesn't know because he's not a gambler. Phil Kalama is interrogating Lois about what happened, but she maintains that she didn't see anything because she was blinded by the headlights. When Phil starts to get physical with Lois, Steve intervenes, reminding Phil that this isn't his jurisdiction, and tells Danny to take both Phil and Lois home. Steve then talks to Joey's trainer, Luther, a former boxer himself. He's unhappy about losing a perfect boxer in Joey and bemoans how unfair it is that the man who took the punches made the least amount of money. When Steve presses, Luther asks to be left alone and for Steve to talk to Nat. Steve tells him that he already did and relays that Nat says he's not a gambler, which Luther says is a lie. Nat owes money to a guy named Nick Morgan. Steve and Danny go to talk to Nick Morgan and Phil shows up unannounced and uninvited, but Steve lets him sit in. Morgan bet a lot of money on Joey's opponent, but he's a professional gambler and he played a hunch. Sometimes they pay off and sometimes they don't. This one didn't. Danny asks about holding Nat's markers and Morgan denies it. Steve asks where he was when Joey was killed and he tells him that he was with some girl. At this, Phil blows up, attacking Morgan and demanding that he talk, which ruins the mood. Outside, Steve lectures Phil about losing his cool and tells him to let 5-0 handle it. Phil says okay. At the office, Danny informs Steve that Nat has taken off and left no forwarding address, but the hotel clerk did tell him that someone else was looking for Nat too, and now he's got him looking through the mug books. Danny figures that Nat owed Morgan, tried to get Joey to throw the fight to pay off his debt, but Joey wouldn't do it. The result was that Joey got killed. Steve likes the theory and wonders if Phil Kalama figures that way too. And since Phil returned to the boxing ring armed and looking a bit unhinged, he probably did. But at Joey's funeral, he seems composed, talking to Steve about his son and how he was destined to be a winner in life, but instead he's in a grave. Steve pleads with Phil to take some time off. 
Meanwhile, Chin Ho has hit a dead end on the car. Kono can't find Nat. The hotel clerk came up empty with the mug books. If Nat owed money to Morgan, nobody is saying anything, and Morgan's alibi was verified. Everything is coming up zero. Except for Phil, who goes to talk to Lois at a photo shoot that she's running. She didn't go to the funeral, and Phil accuses her of using Joey, to which she says they used each other. He asks where Nat is and grabs her wrist when she tries to walk away, only letting go when he realizes that he's hurting her. He thinks she knows where Nat is because she used to be Nat's girl and he never forgave her for ditching him for Joey. He goes on to tell her that he suspects Nat set Joey up, which Lois denies. It seems she knows more than she's telling, but she tells Phil where Nat is and to go find out the truth from him. Phil goes to talk to Nat at Lois's place and Nat swears he had nothing to do with Joey's death. However, he does slip up about Joey taking a dive. He swears that it was all Morgan and he had nothing to do with it, but Phil doesn't exactly believe him. Nat runs for it and Phil chases him. In an outside stairwell, Nat manages to kick Phil down but loses his balance in the process, falling over the railing and down 10 stories to his death. Steve doesn't believe that Phil murdered Nat despite what witnesses say. The Attorney General doesn't care what Steve believes. It's a bad look, and he only has 24 hours to prove Phil innocent. Steve decides to keep Nat's death quiet and let it slip out that Nat is at Lois's place to see if they can catch who was looking for Nat at his hotel. He also decides to dog Morgan. Phil is also looking for Morgan, who is currently propositioning Lois, which both Phil and Kono witness, though Kono has no idea that Phil is there. Meanwhile, a couple of guys take the Nat bait at Lois's place. Steve thinks they have the killers, but Lois can't identify them. Instead, she confesses. And of course, the confession isn't what you think it's going to be, and I'm not going to spoil it for you. Instead, let's go back to the beginning and talk about this episode because it's quite different from the episodes that we saw prior to this, especially One for the Money, was quite the roller coaster ride. This is a little different. This is much more subdued in a lot of ways and a little more personal because we're dealing with a fellow police officer whom Steve lectures repeatedly throughout this episode. But it's well set up in the beginning that Phil Kalama expects nothing but the best from Joey, expects him to be a winner, thrilled that his son is a winner in boxing. And it's also quite clear from the beginning that he doesn't really like Lois. When it's time for them to go celebrate, Danny excuses himself because he has work to do. And Phil says something about getting a table for two, which is just meant to be for him and his son. Obviously excluding Lois, who is standing right there. Rude as hell. And Joey, of course, insists that Lois join them. So you can tell that there's already a tension there between Phil and Lois. And Joey's not oblivious to it. He just kind of dismisses it as, you know, this is just how my dad is. Then Lois and Joey go to leave. They get outside, and as they're walking away, they're blinded by the headlights of a parked car. And it's actually really effectively shot because these two figures, the, you're, I mean, the camera's facing towards the car. There's the headlights. These two figures walk out into the glare of the headlights. And really, you can't, you can't see any features. You can't even see what kind of clothes they're wearing. You can see some vague outlines of the build, but that's about it. There's no distinguishing features. The two guys get into it with Joey. Credit to Lois. She jumps in and tries to help, but they push her aside. And they end up beating Joey too much. It's obviously they were supposed to rough him up because one guy stops the other guy. He's hitting him with a blackjack, I think. But they didn't call it that. I can't remember what they called it in the episode. He's hitting him, and the one guy stops the other guy from hitting him. So it's obviously just supposed to be a rough-up job. But unfortunately, if you rough up a guy after he's already 
been knocked around in a boxing ring, it's probably more than his head can take, and Joey ends up dying of his injuries. Five O is investigating, maybe because of the boxing angle, probably because it's we're dealing with a police officer's son. Steve first talks to Nat, and of course Nat realized how everybody loved him, how he was the perfect fighter, he was going to be a contender. And then when the subject of money comes up, Nat shuts him down and says, well, I'm a manager, I'm not allowed to gamble. So then you see Phil interrogating Lois, insisting that she talk, insisting that she knows something, and she maintains she couldn't see anything because she was blinded by the headlights. And when she, he starts to get physical with her, that's when Steve and Danny intervene and take him home. So that's the first indication that you have that Phil is going to be a problem. Steve then goes and talks to Luther, who is caught somewhere in between grief and bitterness at this point because he's a former boxer. He knows how the game is played, that the boxers who put their their health and their lives on the line don't make hardly any of the money because Steve asks if maybe that's why Joey was jumped. It was for money. And Luther's like, yeah, no, he didn't have any because the boxers don't make any. It goes to the managers. It goes to the gamblers. Not enough trickles down to the boxers. And Luther is pretty reluctant to help. He just wants to be left alone for a while because he's, he's just bitter about this whole thing. And he's bitter about losing a really good fighter. And now he has to find a new one. At some point, he says he's just a black man trying to make a living. And that, that's definitely the vibe that you get. He's, he's worn down by life in a lot of ways. And he tells Steve to go talk to Nat because Nat's the manager. Nat speaks for all of us, is what he says. And when Steve tells him, I already did, he doesn't know anything about the money. And that's when Luther gives him up and says, oh yeah, he owes money to Nick Morgan. So when Steve and Danny go to talk to Nick Morgan, he's actually sitting in this lovely plush office playing Rock'em Sock'em Robots with an associate. Now, obviously, this is supposed to have some symbolism in the fact that as a gambler embedded in this system, Nick Morgan, he's kind of pulling the strings of the boxers. It's all—it's basically implying that, yes, he's behind the dive that Joey was supposed to have taken. That's what it's supposed to be implying. As a child from the 80s, I'm giggling at these two grown men, one of whom is wearing a very lovely tailored suit, playing Rock'em Sock'em Robots and talking to the police. It hits differently for me. Anyway, Steve and Danny start talking to Nick and Phil busts in. They let Phil sit in, which was probably not the best idea. I figured you wouldn't mind if I heard what you could tell us about last night. Please be my guest, Mr. Kalama. As I was just telling these two gentlemen, I don't think I could be of any help. Well, don't let me interrupt you. I'll sit right down here, all right? Mr. Kalama, you have my deep personal sympathy. It's a great loss, not only to you, but to boxing. You're a smart gambler, Morgan. Smart enough to know how to lay the odds. Now, the odds against a cream puff puncher like Torlino belting out Joey are what? 20 to 1? So I played a hunch and got racked up. It isn't the first time, and it won't be the last. What are you trying to say, Mr. McGarrett? You think because I lost a few dollars last night, I decided to declare war on Joey? Is that what you're trying to say? Interesting thought. Not practical, not businesslike. If I dropped a bundle last night. It's all part of the game. You know, I win a little and I lose a little. You never know with sporting events. Tell us about Nat Keller. 
Well, I know Nat Keller only slightly. He's been around forever. What about him? We hear you're holding some of his markers. You got a bump tip. It's all wrong. I don't play that way. And managers don't bet on anything. It's in a rule book. And you know all the rules. Where were you when uh, Joey got hit? Well, I'll tell you. I was playing gin rummy in the backseat of my car with the world's most beautiful gin player. No more games, Morgan! Not talk, Bill! Take your I want hands. to talk, Bill! Bill. Get Bill. your hands off! He's got to talk, Steve! Take your hands off! He's got to make the talk! He's got to talk, Steve! Stop it. Quiet down. Take him outside, Denno. Playing gin rummy in the back seat of his car with a beautiful blonde. I've never heard it described that way before, but okay. And I would think with the amount of money he obviously has, he could afford to take her somewhere instead of the back seat of a car. Take her somewhere nice. God. Anyway, because of the, the way the interrogation is going, Phil Colon loses his mind and he jumps Nick Morgan and Steve and Danny pull him off and throw him out. And it just ruins the whole interrogation moves. Nick is no longer going to be cooperating with these people. So Steve goes outside and he lectures Phil for the first time about letting Fibo do their job, taking some time off, going to grieve for his son. Stop interfering. You're making things worse. And Phil seems like he agrees. But we all know that he's not going to back down. So back at the office, we find out that Nat Keller's taken off, which lends credence to the idea that he had something to do with this botched dive. And Danny gives floats that theory that Nat orchestrated Joey to take a dive to pay off his debts, and then Joey refused. And Steve agrees, and he also wonders if maybe Phil Kalama hasn't figured it that way as well. And we get this great scene of Phil, who's uh, played by Frank Tacova. Going back to the boxing ring where Joey had had his last fight and getting in the boxing ring and he's kind of having this flashback of all of the people that were involved in, in Joey's life at the time. So Lois and Nat and Nick Morgan and he's standing in that ring fiddling with his service revolver. So it, it's a great kind of visual moment to show us just how, just kind of to show us where Phil Kalama is with his mental state. Because then we go to Joey's funeral and Phil is lamenting in a beautiful scene. It's a beautifully written scene and beautifully acted. Frank Tacova is marvelous in this episode. But in this, this scene, he's lamenting about his son. I remember when he was a kid, six or seven. We came here once. Just before we moved to Maui. Just the two of us, like we used to do from time to time. I remember how he looked around. His eyes were big and wondering. He was always a sensitive, thoughtful kid, Steve. Remember? He used to ask a lot of questions. Not like other kids. Different. Questions about life. About death itself. I talked to him about it then. He said, listen. I don't want you to come here first before me, Dad. When we do come here, I'd like it to be together. I'd like it to be together, he said. I told him not to worry about that, that we had all of life ahead of us, all the joys, happiness, all the time it takes for a man to grow up and make something of himself. 
that a man didn't need to worry about the kahunas who were praying over him, not while he was alive. That's what I was hoping for Joey. That he could lick the devils without their help. And that's what he said he would do. He would always lick them. And that he would turn out to be a winner in life. I remember he said that to me. That he would be a winner in life. Don't, Phil. Don't torture yourself. And now, he's here. He's here first. Now I'm alive. It's wrong. It's terribly wrong. So we get this sense of just how much Phil loved his son and just how broken he is. But there's also something else under there too that the hopes that he had for Joey, that Joey was supposed to be a winner, the emphasis on that kind of makes you question if there's something a little bit more going on here. And of course there is. It's a Hawaii episode. So while Steve and his team are running down leads and doing things the right way and coming up with nothing, which is interesting how often in this show that they show the team running leads and coming up with nothing. A lot of police work does is that, is that you run down your leads and you hit dead ends or you come up with no information. There is, for all of the drama, there's actually some realism here with when it comes to the police work about how they go about running down leads and the fact that they end up with goose eggs a big part of the time. So while they're doing their thing, you have Phil doing his thing because he's not going to give up on this. I believe Lois calls him at one point an avenging angel, and that's pretty much the truth. It really characterizes him well. Because he goes and talks to Lois. I missed you at the funeral, Lois. I couldn't make that scene, Phil. You didn't figure you owed at least that much to Joey? I gave Joey as good as I got. We both knew the score. You wouldn't have given him the right time if he hadn't been a contender. You used him. Maybe I did. Or maybe he used me. So what's your excuse, Dad? I never wanted anything for Joey he didn't want himself. It had to be the best for Joey. No second place or don't come home. Sure, I taught him to be the best in everything he did. Anything wrong in that? The winner gets the gold medal. You can't wear a pat on your shoulder or... Nice try, sonny boy, on your chest. Now, what do you want, Phil? Where do I find Nat Keller? How would I know? You were Nat's girl before you found a better trick in Joey. And before that, it was a hoofer, and before that, a football player. Where is he? If I knew, I wouldn't tell Where? you. Where? Where? You... never forgave you for leaving him for Joey. Maybe he never forgave Joey either. What do you mean by that? Nat owed money to a certain gambler named Nick Morgan. I don't know anything about those things. Nat tried to get Joey to go into the tank for Tolino. That wouldn't do that. Joey wouldn't do that, you mean. That's why Joey died. And that's why Morgan is after Nat. If you're right, I mean, say you're right, why would Nat come to me? Maybe because he knew you're the last person in the world anybody would figure to help. And he'd be right. And you should know that better than anyone. You know, whoever is hiding that out is not doing him a favor. Not really. Why? 
because if Morgan's boys reach him first, before we do. Phil. was played by Jesse White and Jesse White is not what you would call a a hot guy and at the time that this was filmed he was probably about 50 years old. Meanwhile Lois Walker was played by Jean Hale and she was probably about 30 so she was like 20 years younger than he was and she is the typical beautiful blonde. So it's interesting that Phil calls her out on one at one time being Nat's girl and then throwing Nat over for Joey. It kind of illustrates rather well how she hooked herself onto any man that was willing to meet her financial needs. And she owns up to that. But she also tells Phil to go find Nat and find out the truth and then blow your brains out. So the mystery deepens not just because not just because we don't know who orchestrated Joey's death and who wanted him to take the dive that he ended up not taking. But there's also something that Joey is maybe not the perfect son that Phil has always claimed him to be and always thought him to be. There's more emotional heart to this episode. There's more, I think, there's more at stake emotionally in this episode, at least for Phil Kalama, than there is maybe crime-wise, that the mystery isn't so much who did the killing. It's not your straightforward procedural of let's catch the bad guy. There's definitely a more compelling emotional element here. And you expect to get some of those answers when Phil catches up with Nat at Lois's apartment. But aside from Nat slipping in regards to the dive, knowing that there was a dive orchestrated, but claiming he had nothing to do with it, claiming it was all Morgan, you don't really get any more information from Joey. The thing is, is that where Phil and Nat are standing in Lois's apartment, they're on the balcony. You kind of expect Phil, because we've seen Phil now get physical with Lois twice and with Nick Morgan once. You expect him to get physical again with Nat Keller and you're standing, they're standing on that balcony. You expect something bad to happen. What you don't expect is for Nat to full on facepalm Phil and shove him away from him and take off running. So now you have two older guys. I'm not sure how old Frank DeCova was at the time, but you have two older guys chasing each other through the hallway and, and into this outside stairwell which always baffles me to see because I live in a cornfield where we have winter, so they're always odd for me to see. Anyway, you see them going down, running down the stairwell. You also do not anticipate Nat Keller turning on Phil Kalama and kicking him down. So as a lieutenant for the Maui police, I feel like Phil has settled into a comfortable part of his career where he doesn't have to get physical with suspects unless they're handcuffed in an interrogation room because he was not prepared for Nat at all. Nat was also not prepared for the ensuing fall over the balcony because it's it's interesting, interesting the way that it's done is because you anticipate something bad to happen to Nat. You do not anticipate him to kick Phil in the chest, knock him down, and lose his balance and go over the railing. 
So we get a slight twist to this episode because in addition to the fact that we are trying to find out who killed Joey Kalama and who ordered that killing, Steve is also now faced with the death of Nat Keller and defending Phil Kalama because he doesn't believe Phil did it, despite what the witnesses say. And really the wit the one witness that they had is a lady who saw Nat fall over the railing and then saw Phil. But Steve refuses to believe that Phil would murder Nat Keller because Phil's a good cop. Even Chin Ho says maybe he didn't mean to. Maybe he, he questioned him a little too hard, is kind of how Chin Ho puts it which sort of insinuates that roughing up suspects is a normal police procedure, which is a little disconcerting. But Steve maintains that he believes Phil's innocent and he goes to the attorney general to defend Phil against the, the charges because the attorney general is saying he asked to press charges. He has a witness. This is what happened. And he wants to believe that Phil is innocent, but he's also a police officer and that's not going to play well with the public if you have rogue cops going around killing suspects. But Steve is just adamant that he doesn't want Phil to lose his career because he's been such a good cop. And honestly, I want a man to defend me as much as Steve will defend any cop accused of killing anyone. Anyway, the attorney general gives him 24 hours before he presses charges. So they come up with this idea to keep it on the down low that Nat Keller was killed and le let it leak out through Kono's connections that he's holed up in Lois's apartment, which is kind of a clever ploy in order to catch the guys who are looking for him. But I'm also wondering how effective that would be because eventually it's going to get out. They can only keep it so quiet, especially since the guy didn't just die in front of a witness. He fell from the 10th story of a building that's the kind of thing that generates news. It generates press. So unless Steve is suppressing the press at this point, or possibly suppressing the identity of the victim, which I suppose he could do, still that death is going to happen at Lois's apartment building. You would think that the people who are looking for him would be a little bit leery of that until you catch them and then you're like, nah, they're not that bright. One of them does know his rights really well, saying that they don't have to talk unless they want to. And one of them definitely isn't quite as smart as the other one is. But outside of that, it's definitely not a brains operation. Because when they catch them, the apartment itself is mostly dark. It's mostly dim. And you hear the water running in the bathroom like Nat's taking a shower. Shower curtain is amazing, by the way. I love the pattern. Love the color. It's gorgeous. Anyway, so one of the guys busts into the bathroom in order to kill Nat in the shower, a la Psycho. And even the bathroom is dark. I don't know if they figure that Nat didn't turn on any lights because he's trying to keep a low profile or if it literally just did not occur to him that there were no lights on in the bathroom, in the apartment, anywhere. Everything was dim. Is that how they figured he was hiding? I don't know. I just figured that should have tipped them off. So while this is happening, Kono is staking out Nick Morgan's boat and so is Phil Kalama, unbeknownst to Kono. Phil kind of makes Kono look a little bit like an idiot in this episode because not only is he staking Nick Morgan out a few cars away from Kono, but he also manages to get Kono to leave later by doing a fake riot call. And it's like, oh, poor Kono. Made a fool of. Happens to the best of us. Anyway, both Kono and Phil witness Lois on Nick Morgan's boat. Nick Morgan, by the way, is played by Peter Mark Richmond, who's played quite a few bad guys in his time but he is a very suave, smooth, ascot-wearing villain. I'd seriously consider anything he offered me. 
And Lois does too, but ultimately she leaves without making a commitment and ends up going in in order to identify the two men that they've picked up at her place and try to identify them when she can't. And that's when she confesses because they offer to give her protection from Nick Norgan and she says, can you give me protection from Phil Kalama? And when they ask why, she says, because he knows I killed his son. Mild spoilers. So it turns out she didn't directly kill Joey Kalama, but she knows more about the situation than when she was leading on. And like I said, there was a lot more emotionally at stake for this episode. And that all comes to a head after she tells Steve what she knows. So maybe the good guys do get their man, but at an emotionally devastating cost. Let's take a look at the guest cast here. As I said before, Phil Colombo is played by Frank DeCova probably best known as Chief Wild Eagle on F Troop. He often played Native American characters, even though I don't believe he was. He also showed up on Gunsmoke, The Rifleman, Surfside 6, Route 66, Maverick Thriller, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Cheyenne, The Untouchables, Laramie, Stony Burke with Jack Lord, 77 Sunset Strip, Wagon Train, Love American Style, Cannon, Beretta, Little House on the Prairie, and Incredible Hulk. He also turned up in the movies The Ten Commandments, The Greatest Story Ever Told, Arrowhead with Charlton Heston, Jack Palance, Brian Keith, and Milburn Stone, Run of the Arrow with Rod Steiger, Brian Keith, and Charles Bronson, Portrait of a Mobster with Vic Morrow and Peter Breck, and The Mechanic with Charles Bronson. Nick Morgan, as I said, was played by Peter Mark Richmond, one of my favorites. He was Andrew Laird on Dynasty, C.C. Capwell on Santa Barbara, Duke Page on Longstreet, Nicholas Kane on the short-lived show Kane's 100. He also turned up in Rawhide, Stony Brook with Jack Lord, Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits, The Wild Wild West, The Fugitive, The Man from Uncle, Voyage to the Bound of the Sea, Gunsmoke, Bonanza Mannix, The Virginian, Mission Impossible, The FBI, Ironside, Cannon, Electra Woman, and Dinah Girl, Quincy, Starsky and Hutch, Wonder Woman, Charlie's Angels, Galactica 1980, BJ and the Bear, Fantasy Island, Love Boat, Knight Rider, TJ Hooker, Murder, She Wrote, Matlock, and Beverly Hills 90210. He also turned up in the movies Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, which is my absolute least favorite Friday the 13th movie. And every time I hate watch it when it's on TV, I always ask Peter Mark Richmond, why are you here? You could do better. He was also in Naked Gun 2 and a half, Judgment Day with Monty Markham and Cesar Romero, for singles only with John Saxon, Marianne Mobley, and Lana Wood, The Black Orchid with Sophia Loren and Anthony Quinn, and The Strange One with Ben Gazzara and Pat Hingle. And he was in the TV movies Mallory, Circumstantial Evidence with Raymond Burr, Robert Loja, and Mark Hamill, Dempsey with Treat Williams, Sam Watterson, and Sally Kellerman, City Killer with Gerald McCraney and Leather Locklear, and Bonanza The Next Generation. He also was in the TV miniseries Blind Ambition with Martin Sheen. Matt Keller was played by Jesse White, probably best known as Oscar Pundy on The Ann Southern Show, Mickey Calhoun on Private Secretary, and Jesse leads on Make Room for Daddy, also known as The Danny Thomas Show. He was Cavender in the Twilight Zone episode, Cavender is Coming. He was also in Circus Boy, The Frank Sinatra Show, The Donna Reed Show, 77 Sunset Strip, Hawaiian Eye, Kane's 100, with co-star Peter Mark Richmond, Ben Casey, Bonanza, The Addams Family, The Munsters, Perry Mason, Wild Wild West, Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, That Girl, Mannix, Kolchak, Happy Days, Quincy, BJ and the Bear, Love Boat, Trapper John, MD, and MacGyver. He turned up in the movies Matinee, The Cat from Outer Space, The Reluctant Astronaut, 
The Ghost in the Invisible Bikini and Pajama Party, both as the character J. Sinister Hulk, The Bad Seed, Hell's Half Acre, Bedtime for Bonzo, Harvey, and the TV movie Harvey. He was also in the TV movies George M., Of the Icing, and The Plant Family. Lois Walker was played by Jean Hale. She was Polly in the two Mad Hatter episodes of Batman. She's also in Wagon Train, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, My Favorite Martian, The Fugitive, Perry Mason, Wild Wild West, Hogan's Heroes, Bonanza, and The Virginian. She turned up in the movies St. Valentine's Day Massacre, In Like Flint, Taggart, and Violent Midnight, and was in the TV movies Lies Before Kisses, Thanksgiving Day, and Pals. Joey Kalama was played by Jerry Summers. He was Ira on The High Chaparral. He also was in Adventures of Rin Tin Tin, The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis, The Virginian Laramie, Half Gun Will Travel, The Man from Uncle and The Girl from Uncle, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Mod Squad, Emergency Cannon, Barnaby Jones, and The Rockford Files. He was in the movies Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, Big Jake, Kukin's Bluff, and Surf Party. He also has 86 stunt credits, including Midnight Run, License to Drive, The Monster Squad, TJ Hooker, Dukes of Hazard, Avalanche, Rooster Cogburn, Blazing Saddles, Kojak, The Poseidon Adventure, Big Jake, The Green Berets, Bonanza, The Wild Wild West, The Monsters, and Star Trek. Elroy, one of the thugs responsible for Joey Kalama's death, was played by Hal Baylor. He played Mercury in three Joker Penguin episodes of Batman. He was also on The Lone Ranger, Cheyenne, Surfside 6, The Rifleman, Have Gun, Will Travel, Laramie, Wagon Train, 77 Sunset Strip, The Addams Family, Hazel, Perry Mason, Rawhide, Beverly Hillbillies, Green Acres, My Favorite Martian, Big Valley, Invaders, Star Trek, Mannix, The Virginian, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, Dan Agus, Dragnet 67, Adam 12, Emergency, The Blue Knight, and Chips. He also turned up in the movies Cornbread Earl and Me, Herbie Rides Again, The Barefoot Executive, and Sands of Iwo Jima. Sugar, the other thug, was played by Wayne Want, and we've already seen him as the sharpshooter in The Box. Luther was played by Charles Lampkin, but he was billed as Charles Lanskin. He was Tiger Sheppin on Frank's Place, Ralph Barton on Mayberry RFD, and Andrew on The Long Hot Summer. He also turned up in Surfside 6, Wild Wild West, Julia, The Bold Ones, The Protectors, The Lawyers, The Senators, and The New Doctors, Batgirl, Streets of San Francisco, Emergency, Adam 12, The Incredible Hulk, Barnaby Jones, Quincy, The Jeffersons, Highway to Heaven, Night Court, Webster, and 227. He also showed up in the movies Cocoon, Cornbread Earl and Me with Hal Baylor, Hammer with Fred Williamson, William Smith, and Bernie Hamilton, and The Man with James Earl Jones, Martin Balsam, Burgess Meredith, and Barbara Rush. He was also in the TV movies Hurricane with Larry Hagman, Martin Milner, and Jessica Walter, Panic on the 522 with Bernie Casey, Lyndon Childs, Andrew Duggan, Linda Day George, Ina Balin, Robert Mandon, and Dana Elkar. Why haven't I seen this movie? Look at that cast. And Last of the Great Survivors. He's also in the TV miniseries Roots, The Next Generation, and Gemini Man. Maxi was played by Daniel Santiago. This is his only acting credit, though he does have some production manager, producer, and crew credits. The ring announcer was played by William Miller. This was his only credit. And the referee was played by Bobby Lee, not to be confused with the actor-comedian Bobby Lee, who currently has a recurring role as Jin on the 2018 Magnum P.I. This is his only credit. And our story teleplay credit goes to Jerry Ludwig, as I said, this is the first of 12 episodes for him on Hawaii Five-O. He also wrote four episodes of I Spy, five episodes of Mission Impossible, six episodes of Police Stories, seven episodes of Murder, She Wrote, four episodes of MacGyver, four episodes of something called Assignment Vienna, and he has the creator credit for the short-lived series Jessica Novak. He also wrote the TV movies Assignment Munich, Strange Homecoming, Midnight Lace, and Deadly Desire. <laughs> 
And that is Along Came Joey. It's not as flashy of an episode as some of the other ones we've had. It's not quite as wild and crazy, but it's a very solid, emotional episode. Frank Tikova definitely gives a lot of weight to the character of a police officer who's lost his son to violence. And like I said, there is that emotional gut twister when we find out the truth about who killed Joey and who orchestrated the dive. It's an excellent palate cleanser after such wild episodes like The Box and One for the Money. Give it a watch. You'll make a good cop one of these days, huh? No mistake. The doctors were right. Your child has a neuroblastoma. As diagnosed in the stomach. Malignant. Cancer. Mrs. Whalen? I can cure your child. You, s you said cancer. Mm-hmm. I've cured cancer many times. Worse than your Tommy's. Much worse. But the, the doctors, specialists, my husband and I have been all over to the best. They all said the same thing. No hope, incurable. It's a matter of uh, time. Three months. Two months. I... I can't believe. Believe. Believe me. I will cure your child. Oh, I want to. Dear God, how I want to. Episode 20, Once Apart of Time, Part 1. Air date, February 19th, 1969. Written by our creator, Leonard Freeman. Directed by Michael Caffey. He only directed the two-parter for this series. Episode 21, Once Upon a Time, Part 2. Air date, February 26th, 1969. Still written by Leonard Freeman. This episode has two directors. In addition to Michael Caffey, we also have Abner Biberman. And this will be the first of five episodes for him. Baby Tommy is unhappy about getting a blood test, but Dr. Fremont promises Tommy's mother that it will be the only pain he'll ever feel in her clinic. Dr. Fremont runs the blood through a giant diagnostic computer and confirms the original diagnosis of cancer. The other doctors only gave Tommy months to live, but Dr. Fremont says she can cure him. After showing Tommy's mom a photo album of the people she's cured and saved from death, Tommy's mother agrees to Tommy's first treatment, which involves him holding onto the handles of a machine. Even though it looks simple, it is expensive. But it doesn't matter. Tommy's mother will do anything. As it turns out, Tommy's mom is Steve McGarrett's sister, Marianne. He receives a cablegram, and after delegating the current workload to the rest of the team, he takes off on the first flight to L.A. There he finds a sister in an optimistic state, thanks to Dr. Fremont. Her husband, Tom, however, isn't quite as exuberant, and when Marianne goes to fix Tommy a bottle, he tells Steve why. 
He thinks Dr. Fremont is an expensive quack, but he's going along for the sake of his wife's sanity. When Tom goes to work, Steve borrows the car and goes after the quack. Steve purchases one of Dr. Fremont's cure machines and takes it to the FDA, who are quite familiar with Dr. Fremont, but they can't do anything about her until she violates interstate commerce. Steve shows them the machine and tells them that she just did. The FDA are all in. When Steve tries to explain what's going on to Marianne, she simply won't believe it. She's too far into denial. Steve insists on prosecuting Dr. Fremont despite Marianne's objections, begging him to let her cure Tommy. But Steve is resolute, knowing that Dr. Fremont isn't doing anything but taking Marianne's money. As soon as Steve leaves the room, Marianne calls Dr. Fremont to warn her. Steve arrives at Dr. Fremont's with a warrant. She tries to return Steve's money, but he won't take it. When she tries to stall him, he serves the warrant. He's just not in the mood. Dr. Fremont then tries to hit on Steve, and her pickup line ends up being her origin story. Thanks to her superstitious mother, she became a faith healer by learning from her husband, whom she married when she was 14 because the Tennessee holler was wild back in the day. After her hubby died, she reinvented herself as an educated lady and moved out to L.A. to make her dime. As weirdly charismatic and obviously desperate as she is, Steve turns down her offer for a truce and whatever else she wants. Dr. Fremont promises him that Tommy will be dead before the case hits court and his sister will never forgive him. Steve goes back to Hawaii, resumes his work, and keeps in touch with his sister. And then the news he's been waiting for has come in. Tommy died three months to the day after being diagnosed. Steve is devastated. Marianne had begged Dr. Fremont for help, but she only would if Steve backed off. Steve's grief turns to anger. Busting Dr. Fremont on the interstate commerce charge isn't good enough. She should be charged with murder. In L.A. court, the Fremont faithful are raucous as she takes the stand, which pisses off the judge. He adjourns the court with a warning that this sort of shit won't be tolerated in the future. In a moment, that trial. But first, Steve is committed to getting Dr. Fremont on murder charges, so he asks FDA lawyer Zipser how it can be done and if it has ever been done. It's been done once. Steve will have to find a death certificate signed by Dr. Fremont stating that the person died of one thing and then find a reputable medical doctor that will examine the person's medical history and conclude the person died of something else. Then he has to prove M.O. and criminal intent. And if he does all that, it means absolutely nothing without physical proof. So what Steve has a little less than 24 hours to do is find that perfect case, get authorization for an exhumation, have an autopsy performed, and find proof of a different cause of death than what was stated on the death certificate. Steve likes the challenge. Meanwhile, his sister Marianne and her husband Tom are having some marital issues. Tom confesses to, to calling Steve in because he thought Dr. Fremont was a quack, and Steve would do what he couldn't. Marianne knew all of that, but she still doesn't believe that Dr. Fremont is anything but a saint that Steve is trying to crucify. A file clerk at the records office offers Steve some flirty help, and he accepts. The two of them go through the death certificates of the last six months looking for any signed by Dr. Fremont. They find four names, and the file clerk earns a kiss from Steve as a thank you. He lets Zipser know what he's found and asks him to cut through the red tape on any exhumation or, and autopsy. Zipser agrees and reminds Steve he only has 18 hours left. Steve checks out the next of kin of the names he found. The first family has moved. The second family belongs to the Fremont faithful and had been in the courtroom. The third family, the Grant family, are willing to talk to Steve and offer their help. Walter Grant went to Dr. Freeman to cure his diabetes. His brother Chester warned him that she was a quack, but Mama Grant bought Walter one of the doctor's healing machines. 
She said that the doctor ran a drop of Walter's blood through her machine and then told Walter that he didn't have diabetes. He had a vitamin deficiency and he could throw away his needles and insulin. The cause of death Dr. Fremont put on his death certificate was vitamin deficiency and malnutrition due to alcoholism. After all, that's why Walter wanted the cure, so he could drink. However, the family doctor said he died after falling into a diabetic coma. This is the perfect case that Steve needs, but Mama Grant balks at exhumation and autopsy until Steve tells her that Dr. Fremont's latest victim is his nephew. It's well after dark when the body is exhumed and after midnight when the autopsy is finished. Unfortunately, Walter Grant's coffin wasn't the best and the pathologist can't determine an exact cause of death. Steve will have to come up with something else. At the trial, Dr. Fremont identifies herself on the stand and under oath as a naturalist and is willing to demonstrate her practice for the court by running a drop of blood through the diagnostic machine that's been wheeled into the courtroom. Steve volunteers. So part one of the the two-parter covers up until the case is adjourned because the judge gets pissed at everybody being loud. The second part is almost entirely Steve trying to find that perfect case so he can get the evidence he needs to to get Fremont on murder charges. And I'm going to be honest, I'm probably just going to play mostly sound clips throughout this because this two-parter is really, really good. The acting is really, really good. The storyline is really good. And it's just easier if I just let you listen to some of it than listen to me talk about how much I love it. Because it's not necessarily an easy episode to watch. And it's a departure from the typical Steve pursuing the bad guy case in that this the emotional stakes have been risen higher. We saw that in Along Came Joey. The emotional stakes were kind of up there for Phil Kalama. Now Steve's in that role because he's going after the person who is victimizing his sister and her family. And as such, we get a lot of dramatic scenes. This two-parter, it's not action-packed. There is a lot of drama happening. But it's not dull. It's engrossing. We get to see Steve in a, in a slightly different light. He is, while he's still very much a cop and he's still pursuing justice, we get to see him with his sister. We get to see him with his brother-in-law. We get to see him with his nephew. And we get to see him dealing with his sister's denial and his nephew's illness and ultimately his nephew's death in really emotionally charged scenes. And they're done just so beautifully. So while it's not action-packed, we're not going to have a shootout here. There's no car chases here. It's not slow. It doesn't feel slow because Steve is our guy. So we're in it on his side. We want him to get justice for his nephew and we're going along with him and feeling every frustration he does. So the first episode of the two-parter opens up with Tommy getting his blood test and Dr. Fremont diagnosing him. Because this is 1969, the computer she uses to diagnose him is huge. Like the whole wall is really computered. But when they bring it into the courtroom at the end of the second episode, it's like pretty much a four foot section of this computer is used for the diagnosis. But she she does stuff. And because this is 1969 and people aren't that familiar with computers, it's easy for her to run this drop of blood on a card through this machine, flip some knobs, make some notes. Ah, yes, this is the diagnosis. It's true. He has cancer, but I can cure him. And poor Marianne, she's devastated. The baby's probably about a year old. In the first episode, he says he's a year old. Second episode, he says he's six months old. And so there's that goof there. But the kid is obviously a year old. At any rate, it's devastating to be told that you're going to be losing your child at such a young age. And because this is 1969, cancer was pretty much a death sentence back then. 
So Marianne is willing to grab onto any hope she can, though she is a bit doubtful at first until Fremont shows her the photo album of testimonials. And the photo album looks like something that you might find in my grandma's house. It's this gold ornate photo album. I'm like, that looks like grandma's wedding album. Anyway, she shows her the testimonials and and that's pretty much all it takes for, for Marianne to allow Fremont to treat Tommy. And Dr. Fremont is played by Joanne Linville. And the thing is, is that she is so good the way she portrays the character the i mean the woman just drips charisma in this role and she's so persuasive without being forceful and it's so easy to see why people believe in her and why people believe that she can cure them because she is just so good and the thing is is that even as she's talking the kid who's only like a year old and who's been spending part of the the scene because you do have to watch the kid during these scenes because they have their own agenda. They're not there to act when they're that little. He spends part of the time trying to get out of his mother's lap. But then the other part when when he's being treated and she's explaining how this machine works, he can't take his eyes off of her. And that's kind of the feeling she invokes every time she's on screen. You can't take your eyes off of her. She's mesmerizing. So you understand how people fall into her spell. But the treatment machine that she uses, it's like a little box and it's got some gauges on it and you have to hold these two handles. They're like, they're jump rope handles. That's what it looks like. But they're metal jump rope handles and you hold onto those and the machine supposedly uses electricity to recalibrate your own vibration to fight whatever illness you have. It's a lot of junk, but she makes it sound convincing. We then go to Hawaii, we're in Steve's office, and May receives a cablegram and delivers it to him while he's, I mean, it's business as usual. He's, they're trying to capture somebody. The whole team's there. May delivers this cablegram. What's really sweet, and this is the only time you're going to see the team for both episodes because most of it takes place in LA. I think it was actually shot in Van Nuys, which might be why there are two directors on the second part. But you see the team, when he gets this cablegram, giving each other knowing looks because Steve has been commuting back and forth from Hawaii to LA periodically to check in on his sister and check in on the baby. So you see that knowing look of, oh, things have taken a turn. He delegates everything, makes arrangements with everybody to take over some of the schedule, and then he he splits. He goes to LA. He takes a red eye. Both Tom and Marianne act surprised to see him there when he shows up on their doorstep in the morning, which is sort of curious given the fact that he received a cablegram. And it's not until it's not until later that you realize who sent it and what's going on. Because Marianne is so happy to see her brother and, and apologizes for not talking to him for the last couple of weeks, but the baby's turn a quarter. Dr. Fremont is going to save him. And she goes to make Tommy's bottle and her husband Tom is like, yeah, the kid's dying. He's sleeping more and more. He's not eating as much. It's obvious to everyone but Marianne because she's got her head so wrapped up in this Dr. Fremont and she is spending like a thousand, she spent like a thousand dollars so far on these bogus treatments to try to save this kid that's gonna die. And Steve calls him out and says, why haven't you confronted her about this? And he's like, when Tommy was diagnosed as terminal, she nearly lost it. So he's basically going along with this for her sanity and sent for Steve because he knew Steve would be able to do what he can't because he's kind of a wimp. So of course, Steve what does what Steve does and he goes after Fremont by buying the cure machine because basically what it is is that the FDA can't get involved unless there's some violation of federal law, in this case, interstate commerce. And so Steve says he bought this for $700 cash with the clear intent of taking it to his legal address, which is in Hawaii. 
so the FDA can get involved. And in fact, they seem quite excited about being able to go after this lady because they know her and they don't like her. So here's the first heartbreaker of a scene. Steve tries to explain to Marianne that Dr. Fremont's a quack and that he is going to prosecute her for her quackery. And Marianne just will not see reason. Okay, Stephen, don't start with that again. They're all lies. Truth. Lies. Truth documented by experts. Stephen, I don't care what you or your experts say. Dr. Fremont is a saint, a medical genius, and she's curing Tommy. She's a quack, sis. She couldn't cure a hand. Stephen, why did you come here? Did Tom send for you, is that it? Tell me the truth. I'm here because I love you. Because you and Tom and the baby are my family. All the family I got. Look, Stephen. Go home. Please, go home. Look, sis. Look. You haven't read the best part, the last paragraph, it says it all. A worthless, worthless conglomeration of bent tubing, colored lights, switches, wires, and meaningless electronic gadgets. Now, why don't you listen? You could plug that stupid thing into any wall socket and that two-bit transformer drops it down to 32 volts. Just enough to give the sucker that deep therapy hum. That's a horrible thing to say, Steve. I'll tell you what's horrible thought of you day after day holding that poor baby's hands pressed over those phony wonder electrodes look at steve i don't believe you and i'll never believe you well the court will the court i'm a cop remember sis Seize your papers and warrant for her arrest are being drawn up right now. Oh, no, Stephen, you mustn't. I, I beg of you, Tommy's treatments. Treatments? Well, yes, she's curing Tommy. Stephen, she's cured other people with cancer. Others with, with all hope abandoned like Tommy. She has cured them. I've seen them. She showed you a book, huh? A book of pictures and grateful testimonials. Yes, that's right. Oh, God. The faithful. The faithful. Every time we pull a quack into court, there they are, ready and eager and willing to testify, to swear under oath. And every time the physician testifying for the prosecution proves the same thing. One, the patient never had cancer in the first place. Two, now listen to me. Those who had cancer were cured by radiation or surgery administered by a legitimate physician, and it wrongly attributed their cure to the quack. And one more, your miracle. If a quack treats or maltreats enough victims, he sometimes latches onto one that's really money in the bank. That seeming miracle, when the disease remisses, disappears of itself. Hmm? Well, what can I say? I, I mean, you're too strong, too smart. I mean, all I can do is beg. Just a little while. Day by day, Tommy's getting better. I, 
I can see it. I, I can feel it. Look, two weeks, even ten days of treatments. That's all Dr. Fremont needs. Please, Steve. I speak, but you don't hear me, sis. You don't even hear me. <laughs> two days, even. I can't. Why? Why can't you? Because I love you. Steve so desperately wants his sister to understand that he loves her and that's why he's doing this to protect her from people like Dr. Fremont and his sister Marianne is just so desperate to cling to any hope that her baby's going to survive that she just cannot allow any thought that Dr. Fremont is a villain. She just can't. And Jack Lord and Nancy Malone are just so good together. They have such good brother-sister chemistry that you can't help but hurt for both of them because they're both in really in impossible positions. There is no happy ending here. Steve hates hurting his sister but knows that she's just prolonging her own agony by not accepting that her son is going to die. It's just going to make everything worse. And of course, Marianne is faced with the fact of losing her child, which is just devastating. And because she is so convinced and has so convinced herself that Dr. Fremont is Tommy's only hope, she alerts Dr. Fremont to the fact that Steve is coming with a warrant. So Dr. Fremont is waiting for him when he arrives at her office. And what ensues is an absolute train wreck that you cannot take your eyes away from. Not that it's bad, it's just that you're watching this woman who is... I guess I, I guess flailing and attempting to use her charms on Steve. Steve is like completely repelling every attempt she makes to sway him over to her side. And what ensues is, is her basically feeling compelled to give him her origin story. I was born of woman. A stupid, superstitious, salacious old witch, my mother. From the hills of Tennessee, where I was born and raised. Hallelujah. Fascinating? Mm -hmm. Like watching an auto wreck. You're sweet. I try. I don't know why I want you to know this, but I do. Let's uh, forget the first scintillating 14 years. But by then I was a, a precocious, rather mature young lady. And Ma, enough to scare any woman half to death. 
just the laying on of hands, he did. He claimed that when he touched the infected or damaged area, he felt a chill. And he did. His invocation was to the Lord. He said, Jesus, drive the sickness and the fever from this strapping filly. He had the gift, and he cured. His name was Fremont. Ma and I joined the entourage that same day. Ma was in love with that man. So at 14, I married the healer. Even then, I didn't know, but he did. He always knew that I had the gift. He did. <gasps> so, when he died, I just naturally became the healer. Long way from Tennessee, Doctor. Mm-hmm. The hills are poor. Dirt grubbing poor. So I came to the Mecca. I educated myself. Learned how to talk. How to dress. It wasn't easy. And it's so bizarre because it's like this is her way of trying to seduce him or something. There's something kind of... I don't want to necessarily say flirty, but yeah, there's something seducing in the technique in the way she's telling the story. And Steve says it's like watching a car crash. And it really is. It's it's like watching a car accident in slow motion. You cannot look away. It is amazing. It is entrancing. But ultimately it fails. And Fremont swears that Steve's sister will never forgive him. And I think he knows that and is still intent on doing it anyway. He just cannot let the injustice stand. So then we get the next heartbreaker, which is Steve is back in Hawaii. It doesn't really explicitly say how much time has passed, but he's back in the swing of things, working on cases. He comes into the office in Mesa's that his sister had called about 30 minutes before, and he goes into the office, and, and I we see from the outside the exterior office where May and Danny and Chin Ho and Kun all have offices. May's got her desk by his door and then there's like cubby offices to the side where the, the guys work. And it's May and Danny and they both kind of give each other a knowing look and look, you will look at the phone because it's one of those big old phones and you see the light light up saying that he's making that call to his sister. And then later Danny goes into the office with a bottle of something that May had squirreled away from the Christmas party. The office is dark, it's dimly lit, and Steve is in shadow, and Danny offers him some of the booze, and Steve just kind of breaks down in his grief. Baby went into a deep coma this morning. Three months to the day. Doctor said it was a matter of months, maybe. Two, three at the most. (sighs) 
right can you be, Dano? Is there anything I can do to help, Steve? <laughs> so hard she choked on her own tears <laughs> telephone turned to salt in my hand say that Jack Lord is a better actor than people give him credit for. McGarrett is known for being tough. He's a serious lawman. He's not easily rattled. And here in this scene, he is, a, and he gets teary with his sister at one point when he's trying to convince her that Dr. Freeman's a quack. But here he breaks down. He's sobbing. He's crying. There's no hesitation there by Jack Lord to just give in and let this character who, who is so strong and serious and tough give in and grieve over this child and grieve for his sister who is absolutely devastated by the loss of her child and how quickly he can turn that grief into anger it's just so real and and so much a part of the grieving process is that how the sadness can turn to anger and how you can lash out and how grief is not just sadness it, it's all sorts of emotions rolled into one and it's a roller coaster ride on them and he does that in that scene. And it's so, so good. So when he says he would rather get Freeman on a murder charge, you know that's where his heart is and that's what he's going for. So it's no surprise that the whole second part is him trying to nail her on a more serious charge. 
But the last scene of the first episode of the two-parter is in court where the galley is just filled with Fremont's supporters, the Fremont faithful, and they're cheering and they're raucous as she's standing on the stand to testify. And they're just whooping it up and the judge is losing his shit. He's pissed. And we get one really nice moment of levity thanks to Queenie Smith and Vince Howard. Queenie Smith plays uh, one of the Fremont faithful who when everybody else finally dies down, she's singing and... She sings as Vince, who Howard, who plays the bailiff, escorts her out. And it's this nice moment of levity after after the real heaviness that you get that little uptick for the judge scolding everybody and then saying, we're adjourning until 10 o'clock tomorrow morning and y'all better behave because I ain't standing for this. It's sort of like the kick up off the bottom when you when you go down to the bottom of the pool and you're down at the lowest part and you kick up off the bottom. That's kind of what this is. It's that uptick saying that Steve's going to bounce back with this trial and he's going to get her. So almost all of the second episode is him looking for this perfect case to get the proof he needs to nail Fremont for murder. And he is intent on doing this despite how much the odds are against him. And Zipser explains to him just exactly what needs to be done in order for this to happen. Okay, Professor, from the top. Well, the Bureau of Records is right over there. Got these hard wooden institutional chairs. Now you put your bottom one of those chairs and you start digging back through the records. And sooner or later, you're going to come up with a death certificate over Fremont's signature. Now it will state in black and white that the patient died of a severe case of fallen arches or some such nonsense. Okay then. Now, eager beaver, quick, you go back into the medical history of the patient and you find in the records of a reputable, competent MD that the patient, in fact, had coronary heart disease most probably died of a coronary seizure or old-fashioned heart failure. Now, are you with me so far? Sure, sure, I'll sure. Go. Now, all that digging, all that information, it's worthless. That figures. Now, before we can even go to court on a murder charge, we must establish common scheme and design. Modus operandi must prove criminal intent. Well, with Fremont, that should be easy. Mm. Now, I said proof. Proof, not uh, hearsay evidence, but direct testimony in court. I was there, I saw, I heard. That kind of direct testimony. Then, you know what we've got? Goose egg. Well, now, give that man a cigar. No, no, not yet. Not yet. Suppose that I could produce physical evidence, proof to back up those findings. Well, Mr. McGarrett, you're due back in court at 10 in the morning. Well, that gives me almost... Uh, 24 big fat hours. You dig aggravation? Go ahead. Be my guest. The Bureau of Records is right over there. Okay, one more question. Ask away. At these prices, go ahead, Seamus. What? <laughs> Suppose that I just turn up that perfect case. Mm-hmm. Well, then you've got to get permission to exhume the body. All right. Suppose we exhume the body. And the autopsy provides us with incontestable evidence that the patient died of heart disease. While Fremont was with full knowledge of the patient's condition, treating for, uh, what, fallen arches? That's criminal intent. That's one hell of a string of suppositions. Yeah, granted. Well? Oh, 
stand a good chance of a murder conviction. Wouldn't we? Admit it, Simpson. I admit it, so what? It's incredibly unlikely that he'll have find this perfect case and be able to get this proof, and he only has 24 hours to do it, but we all know Steve loves a challenge, and so he heads over to the records office. And the file clerk there, I think she was supposed to be ugly, and that's in quotes, because basically it's a pretty blonde girl that they put glasses on. Anyway, she comes over and asks if she can help him, because as she says, we don't get guys like you in here, it's usually just old geezers. And one of them comes by and calls her cheeky baby to illustrate her point. She's very flirty with him, and that's what happens when your only interaction, I guess, at work is with gropey old guys. Anyway... She's very flirty with him, and he finally relents and lets her help him go through the death certificates for the last six months to try to find ones with Fremont's name on them. And the thing is, is that this scene lasts several minutes, which does two things. One, it illustrates how much work that they are putting in for literally only four names. And two, for viewers of a current era, this is how things were done back in the day. Nowadays, you'd probably just Google it and be able to find it. But back in the day, it was all done by hand. And they only come up with four names for, I believe, Zipster says it took him four and a half hours. When Steve leaves, he gives the file clerk a bit of a kiss, which normally I would think would be more inappropriate. But in this case, not so much because she was obviously very flirty with him and she seemed more disappointed that that was all she got. Thank you, chicky baby. So Steve fills in Zipster, lets him know what he found isn't thrilled to be reminded that he only has 18 hours left, and then goes to find the next of kin of the four names that he found. One's moved, one's part of the faithful, who is totally indignant, and she's like, I'm gonna tell Dr. Fremont. He's like, good, I wanted to know that I was here. And this woman looks completely affronted by the fact that her threat was not taken seriously. Then he finds the Grant family, and despite reservations, they're willing to talk to Steve. Why did he go to Dr. Fremont? Because he hated living with diabetes. Diabetes? He hated the insulin shots, the strict diets. He hated the whole regime. <laughs> Most of all, he hated not being able to take a drink. <laughs> you wouldn't talk about water like that, Mama. You know something? It feels good to talk about him. To remember. It hurts a little, but it feels good. Like your heart's been asleep. You feel the pins and needles coming alive again. <laughs> Just for spite. <laughs> every once in a while, Walter would go out. Every Saturday night, he would... Would go out and drink as much beer as he could hold. <laughs> this old house would shake with his laughing and clowning. Sure. And as a result, he was always sick, always in pain. And, uh, and Dr. Freeman? I said she was a quack. Right from the start, I said she was a quack. Yes. Yes, you did. That is true. And I suppose she offered her wonder cure with her wonder machines and Walter bought it. No, I bought it. I took him to her, Mr. McGarrett. Mama, it's done. It's done. 
I'm sorry to press you, but time, I just don't have it. Do you understand? Now, this is critical. Are there medical records that document the fact that Walter was a diabetic? Dr. Rudner, been our family doctor for 20 years. He took care of Walter. He got the records. Rudner, are you DNER? The death certificate signed by Dr. Fremont states that Walter died of vitamin deficiency and malnutrition caused by alcoholism. No. The sugar built up until Walter went into convulsions. He died in a coma, just like Dr. Rudner said he would. Mrs. Grant, this is important, vital, in fact. Two things. Did Fremont diagnose Walter as a diabetic? And did Fremont treat Walter for diabetes? No. What I really love about the scene, aside from the fact that the Grant family, it's Bea Richards and Davis Roberts, are absolutely phenomenal in this scene. It's that there is something real about their grief that they don't, they're not, they haven't been talking about Walter very much since the time of his passing. Chester doesn't think that Mama should speak ill of Walter now that he's gone, but she finds some kind of solace in talking so freely about him. And I love how she was remorseful. She took Walter to Dr. Fremont, she bought Walter the machine, and he ended up dying because of it. And she's very remorseful for that and would like to see some justice, but she balks at the idea of the body being exhumed and, and autopsied. But that she changes her mind because Steve relates his pain to her pain. And it's so effectively done because there's this point during the scene where he's very much in cop mode saying he needs the truth and he doesn't have a lot of time and he only can use facts. But then we get to that point where he bears his pain for her and he's no longer a cop. He is an uncle and a brother looking for his own justice. And it's so well done. And it gives us hope because now we think Steve is going to get the evidence that he needs in order to uh, nail Fremont. And they show the body being exhumed at night because this is how much time has been taken. I believe Zipser says that the autopsy is happening. It's like 1230 in the morning because that's how little time they have. So when the doctor comes in and says, I'm sorry, the body was too degraded due to a faulty coffin. I couldn't determine the, the cause of death. You realize Steve and Zipser only have eight hours in order to come up with something to get Dr. Fremont on murder charges. So it's kind of a gut punch. It's really a gut punch because, you know, he's going into court. They show him in court the next day and it's like, so we know that Steve is going to win. He's the good guy. How does he do this? And William Shallert here plays Dr. Fremont's attorney, and he is magnificent. Really gives this gives a great performance as this, this woman's attorney. But has her under oath explain what a naturalist is and how she is and how she heals people and that she actually doesn't heal people, that she coaches people to heal themselves using nature and electricity and offers to demonstrate how she works and Steve offers himself up to be a volunteer. What ensues is absolutely brilliant because you don't expect this to play out the way that it does. You don't expect Steve to win this way. And it's so good. You're riveted throughout the whole thing because you're like, how is this going to work? How does How is he going to get her? And you just don't see it coming. And it's such a delightful surprise. And spoiler alert, he does make up with his sister. His sister does forgive him, which I think he also knew all along.
This guest cast is huge and it's wonderful and I'm gonna try to be as quick as possible going through them. Dr. C. L. Fremont was played by Joanne Linville. We'll see her in one more episode. She also showed up in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Twilight Zone, Laramie, Route 66, The Defenders, I Spy, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, The Fugitive, Bold Ones, The New Doctors, Kojak Columbo, Mrs. Columbo, Barnaby Jones, Charlie's Angels, and Dynasty. She turned up in the movies The Goddess, Scorpio with Burke Lancaster, A Star is Born, the 1976 version, and The Seduction with Morgan Fairchild. And she was in the TV movies The House on Green Apple Road, From the Dead of Night with Lindsay Wagner and Bruce Boxleitner, and The Critical List. Marianne Whalen was played by Nancy Malone. She was Libby Kingston on Naked City and Clara Varner on Long Hot Summer. She also showed up in The Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, 77 Sunset Strip, Bonanza, Big Valley, Andy Griffith, The Fugitive, Flying Nun, Dan August, Ironside, Cannon, and Gemini Man. She was in the movies Fright, The Violators, An Affair of the Skin with Lee Grant and Kevin McCarthy, and it's somehow not a horror film. Intimacy with Jack King. The Trial of the Cantonsville Nine and Capricorn One. And she was in the TV movies Set This Town on Fire with Chuck Connors and Linda Day George. Skyway to Death with Ross Martin, Stephanie Powers, and Bobby Sherman. The Killing of Randy Webster and Dan August, The Trouble with Women. Tom Whalen was played by John Carter. He was Sergeant Ray Martin on The Smith Family, which was a Henry Fonda series. He was also Lieutenant John Biddle on Barnaby Jones, Max Hartman on Falcon Crest, Carl Hardesty on Dallas, Judge Spencer Martin on The Trials of Rosie O'Neill, and Judge Harlan Newfield on Law and Order. He was also in Third Watch, L.A. Law, Matlock, Dear John, A.T. MacGyver, Simon and Simon, Dynasty, The Rookies, Rockford Files, Cannon, Gunsmoke, Family Affair, Mod Squad, Emergency, Ironside, Cannon, Bonanza, Big Valley. He was in the movies The Andromeda Strain, Badlands, Scarface, and The Hoax, and showed up in the TV movies Her Final Fury, Betty Broderick, The Last Chapter, Shakedown on Sunset Strip, Our Family Business, Death in Space, and Night Chase. Frank Zipser was played by David Shiner. He was Norman Brodnick on the short-lived series Diana with Dame Diana Rigg. He was also in Perry Mason, The Twilight Zone, Dr. Kildare, Burke's Law, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Man from Uncle, The Fugitive, Invaders, Ironside, Mission Impossible, Big Valley, Cannon, Six Million Dollar Man, Vegas, Charlie's Angels, Manimal, Trapper John, Auto Man, Fall Guy, and Murder, She Wrote. He was in the movies Blue Thunder, The Stone Killer, They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, The Odd Couple, and The Greatest Story Ever Told. And he was in the TV movies, The Pilot for Ironside, Dr. Max, The Kids Who Knew Too Much, The Darker Side of Terror with Robert Forster and Adrian Barbeau, and he was also in Skyway to Death with Nancy Malone. Albert Woodson was played by Bartlett Robinson. He was Willard Norton on the short-lived Windy and Me starring Connie Stevens, and he was Frank Caldwell on Mona McCluskey. He also showed up in Perry Mason, The Rifleman, Laramie Gunsmoke, Bewitched, F Troop, Annie Griffith, Stony Burke with Jack Lord, Leave It to Beaver, 77 Sunset Strip, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Thriller, Maverick, Hawaiian Eye, Gilligan's Island, Green Acres, Bonanza the Virginian, Dan August, Mannix Cannon, and Lou Grant. He was in the movies No Time for Sergeants, I Want to Live in the Spirit of St. Louis, and he was in the TV movies The Last of the Power Seekers, The New Adventures of Heidi, and Trial Run. Judge H. Adamson was played by Bill Zuckert. We'll see him in one more episode. He was Chief Siegel in the short-lived Captain Nice, starring William Daniels, Alice Ghostly, and Anne Prentice. And he was Lieutenant Fisk on the very short-lived Future Cop. And General Philip Cross on the wackiest ship in the Army. 
and Mr. Bradwell in Mr. Novak. He has 231 credits going back to 1947, so we're just going to do a few. He was in a Dr. Cassandra episode of Batman. He was also in Stony Brook with Jack Lord, as well as The Fugitive, 77, Sunset Strip, Perry Mason, The Wild Wild West, Chico and the Man, Ironside, Maud, Gemini Man, Man from Atlantis, Emergency, Sledgehammer, Simon and Simon, and Diagnosis Murder. He was in the movies Naked Gun 33 and a Third, Ace Ventura Pet Detective, Critters 3, Snowballing, which is a ski movie, not a porn, Hangar 18, The Strongest Man in the World, The Sky's the Limit, Hang 'em High, The Trouble with Girls, and he had an uncredited role in Tora Tora Tora. I'm starting to think everybody did. He was also in the TV movies The Strange Monster of Strawberry Cove, Family Flight, Trouble Comes to Town, The Girl Most Likely 2, Devil Dog, Hound of Hell, and Killer in the Mirror. The bailiff was played by Vince Howard. He's Officer Vince on Emergency. He was also Charlie Johnson on Streets of San Francisco, Lieutenant Joe Taylor on Barnaby Jones, Ed Thomas on The Smith Family with Tom Whalen, and Pete Butler on Mr. Novak. Guess everybody was on Mr. Novak. He was also in The Monkees, Get Smart, The Invaders, Wild Wild West, Mission Impossible, The New Perry Mason, Chopper One, Ironside, David Cassidy, Man Undercover. I still haven't seen this. Rockford Files, BJ and the Bear, Trapper John, Airwolf, Black's Magic, Frank's Place, Matlock, and Murder, She Wrote. He was in the movies Lethal Weapon 3, Moving Violations, Fuzz, and The Barefoot Detective. And he was in the TV movies Quarantine, Company of Killers, The Hunted Lady, The Golden Gate Murders, and Outrage. Our little old singing lady was Queenie Smith. She played the elderly wife in the short-lived show The Funny Side, which was a sort of sketch comedy variety show about married life. She was also Mrs. Whipple on Little House on the Prairie. She turned up on The Lucy Show, Here's Lucy, The Monkees, That Girl, Dan, August, Barney Miller, Fish, Chico and the Man, Rhoda, Maud, and The Love Boat. She was in the movies Foul Play, The Day of the Locust, Massacre River, Snake Pit, and Showboat. And the TV movies The Girls of Huntington House and Dawn, Portrait of a Teenage Runaway. Defense counsel Herbert was played by William Shallert. We'll see him in one more episode. He has 386 credits going back to 1947. I guarantee you have seen this man in something. He was Martin Lane on The Patty Duke Show, Mr. Leander Pomfret on The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis, Manny Harris on the short-lived Philip Marlowe, Teddy Futterman on the short-lived Nancy Walker Show, Carson Drew on The Hardy Boys' Nancy Drew Mysteries, Russ Lawrence on The New Gidget, Wesley Hodges on The Torkelsons. He also had recurring roles in several other series, including True Blood and The Waltons. He also turned up in Leave it to Beaver and the new Leave it to Beaver, Maverick, Peter Gunn, Donna Reed, Wagon Train, the 1960s Twilight Zone, the 1980s Twilight Zone, and Twilight Zone the movie. He was in Bat Masterson, The Rifleman, Andy Griffith, Thriller, Bonanza, Perry Mason, 77 Sunset Strip, Have Gun Will Travel, Stony Burke with Jack Lord, Rawhide, Wild Wild West, Surfside 6, Get Smart, Gunsmoke, Ellery Queen, Barnaby Jones, Little House on the Prairie, One Day at a Time, Chips, Magna P.I., Simon and Simon, Matlock, Quantum Leap, How I Met Your Mother, and his very last credit listed on IMDb is Two Broke Girls. He was also in the movies Inner Space, Hangar 18, and The Strongest Man in the World with Bill Zuckert, In the Heat of the Night, Pillow Talk, Cry Terror, The Incredible Shrinking Man, and he has incredible roles in M, Them, Singing in the Rain, and The Monolith Monsters. He was also in the TV movies Escape and Man on a String, both with Christopher George, Hijack, Best Sentence, Dawn, Portrait of a Teenage Runaway with Queenie Smith, Through Naked Eyes, Harvey, Gidget Summer Reunion, and The Patty Duke Show, Still Rockin' in Brooklyn Heights. He was also in the TV miniseries Bag of Bones, Warden Remembrance, and North and South Book 2. Mama Grant was played by Bea Richards. 
She was Miss Lula on Hearts of Fire, Mae Benton on Eeyore, Narcissa on Beauty and the Beast. She was also in Big Valley, Ironside, Room 222, Sanford and Son, Vegas, The New My Camera, Hill Street Blues, Benson, L.A. Law, Brewster's Place, Frank's Place, Designing Women, and Family Matters. She was in the movies In the Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, The Great White Hope, Homer and Eddie, and Beloved. She was in the TV movies A Dream for Christmas, Roots the Next Generation, and The Children Shall Lead Us, and Acceptable Risks. Chester Grant was played by Davis Roberts. He was Reverend Teasdale on Palmerstown, USA. He was also in Branded, The Man from Uncle, Insight, Wild Wild West, Doctari, Star Trek, Family Affair, The Flying Nun, Gunsmoke, Dragnet, 67, Mission Impossible, Sanford and Son, Columbo, Ironside, Kolchak, Medical Center, Police Story, What's Happening, The Jeffersons, Luke Grant, The Waltons, Design in Women, and Falcon Crest. He was also in the movies The Killers, Quick Before It Melts, Hall of Anger, Westworld, Detroit 9000, and Demon Seed. And he was in the TV movies, Gidget Grows Up, The Challenge, A Case of Rape, The Ambush Murders, and Nick Knight, which was a failed TV pilot with Rick Springfield. Dr. Jerome Pastor, the medical examiner, was played by John Minor. This was his only credit. The file clerk was played by Victoria Hale. She was the pageant director on Math Warriors, which sounds like a learning show that I never watched. She was also in The Invaders, The Partners, Mission Impossible, and The Jim Gaffigan Show. And she was in the movies Target Harry, That Tinder Touch, The Death Collector, and One Down, Two to Go. Mrs. Kinney was played by Lynn Wood. She was Marion Taylor on The Young Marrieds. And Mrs. Brookhaven on Dusty's Trail, which was a short-lived show with Bob Denver and Forrest Tucker. She was also in My Three Sons, Mission Impossible, Dr. Kildare, Wild Wild West, The Doris Day Show, Mary Tyler Moore, WKRP, and Magna P.I. She also was in the movies Billy Rose's Jumbo and It Lives Again. And in, she was in the TV movies The Legend of Lizzie Borden, The Ghost of Flight 401, and Stone, which was a pilot for a short-lived show with Dennis Weaver. The Cemetery Man was played by Tony DeMilo. He was in The Littlest Hobo and Mr. Novak. He was also in the movies The Onion Field and had uncredited roles in I Married a Monster from Outer Space and The George Raft Story. He was also in the TV movies Cry Rape, Goodbye Raggedy Ann, and Marciano. Our first director, Michael Caffey, as I said, he only directed this two-parter. Betty directed 12 episodes of Combat, 6 of Garrison's Gorillas, 3 episodes of Wild Wild West, 5 episodes of It Takes a Thief, 3 episodes of The Immortal, 8 episodes of The Virginian, 3 episodes of Mod Squad, 4 episodes of The Rookies, 13 episodes of Medical Center, 4 episodes of Canon, 3 episodes of Streets of San Francisco, 2 episodes of Gemini Man, 3 episodes of Wonder Woman, 23 episodes of Barney B. Jones, 5 episodes of Chips, 4 episodes of Dukes of Hazard, 3 episodes of T.J. Hooker, 32 episodes of Trapper John M.D., and 16 episodes of MacGyver. He also directed the TV movies The Devil and Miss Sarah, The Hanged Man, and Seven in Darkness. Our other director, Abner Biberman, this will be the first of five episodes for him. He also directed two episodes of Wagon Train, eight episodes of Tightrope, six episodes of Ben Casey, six episodes of Sam Benedict, four episodes of The Twilight Zone, three episodes of 77 Sunset Strip, four episodes of The Fugitive, 10 episodes of Mr. Novak, eight episodes of Ironside, 25 episodes of The Virginian. He also directed an episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Gilligan's Island, and The Outer Limits. He directed the movies The Looters, The Price of Fear, and Gun for a Coward. He also has 56 acting credits, including Ironside, Heck Ramsey, Sam Benedict, and the movies Elephant Walk, Back to Bataan, The Leopard Man, and His Girl Friday. And that is Once Upon a Time, Parts 1 and 2. 
absolutely superb two-parter. Probably wouldn't be done as a two-parter today because they would have rather, I would imagine, condensed it all into a 42, 43 minute episode taking out what they would have considered filler. So you'd probably get a lot of shortened versions of the more emotionally charged dramatic scenes in favor of something more action-oriented, as well as the research that was done to try to find that perfect case. Probably wouldn't have taken the several minutes that it took in this episode. Like I said, they would have used Google. They would have had it in like two minutes, if that. I think we were lucky that this was done in the late 60s, so they could split it into a two-parter and give us the time to let this story really play out so we can really get into it and get into the emotions of it and into the drama of it. I hope we're realizing by now that Hawaii Five-0, at the heart of the show, it is definitely a cop show, but it is not necessarily a procedural. There's not a guaranteed formula that we're going to go through outside of there is a bad guy, Five-0 is going to catch them. There's a lot of variety, not only to the stories, but to how the stories end up being told. And it's also worth mentioning that we don't really get a lot of personal life stuff with the guys throughout the 12-year run. This is probably the, I think this is the only time we see Marianne, Steve's sister. I don't think we see her again for the rest of the run. So enjoy her now. This two-parter may not be the easiest watch, but it is definitely worth your time. Jim, you're going to make a speech tomorrow. Me? What do I talk about? Law and order. For or against? <laughs> and that is episode 11 of Bookum Dano. I know, another longer episode, and this one featuring three emotionally draining episodes of the show. But I hope it was worth your time. And don't worry, next episode will be back to normal and hopefully back right around the hour mark, if not less than. Until then, if you want to find me online, you can do that by going to my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. And you can also find me rambling away on Twitter at kikiwrites. Thank you so much for joining me and for hanging in there once again. You're all troopers and I appreciate you. So don't get in trouble with any questionable professional gamblers and don't join the cult of a quack. Until next time, aloha.